Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is nothing because it's February 1965 and the Klingons haven't shown up yet. Or have they? These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. Live long and prosper. And welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Writer-artist of the graphic novel Airship Enterprise. Artist and co-creator of the New York Times best-selling graphic novel series Zombie Kid Diaries. Currently the editor-in-chief of Antarctic Press. And in his spare time, he raises tribbles. Oh. It's Brian Denham! Yeah! Hello. Brian. <laughs> How you doing, man? Good. Greetings and solicitation. Yes, and to you, sir. Looking uh, looking uh, cleaner, looking uh, more aerodynamic. We lost the beard. Yeah, that was my pike off-duty beard. This is my, <laughs> my uh, uh, Lieutenant Kirk uh, uh, mustache. <laughs> I was going to say, you're rocking a healthy mustache there, sir. I like it. I like Thanks. the look. Keep the little little diagonal arrow yeah, down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just the tiniest little soul patch right there. That's yeah, well, nice. it's a good look, sir. Yeah, well, Stanley had a uh, editor uh, mustache, so that's uh, it's in uh, respect to him that I keep this. And that's great. That's absolutely great. I think I tried to i I tried to rock a um <laughs> like the full handlebar, like all the way down to the chin mustache yeah. at yeah. one point. And uh, I don't know if it's the shape of my head or the tone of my voice. It just looked creepy. I just can't pull it off. Yeah, no, if you got that, you got to be ready for a fight in any bar, anywhere in the country. (laughs) Exactly. I can pull off, I can pull off pork chop, Uh, pork chop sideburns. I can pull those off. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the the big handlebar mustache, no, no. I might be able to, I think I had it one time where I was able to get Uh. it curled yeah, up that yeah. would look good on you <laughs> i might be able to walk to rock yeah. that <laughs> yeah that's very steampunk <laughs> yeah exactly oh and that's that's your stock and trade man and that's it that's it, a trade market. yeah so speaking of which uh how have things been going uh with antarctic press uh great uh we've had a, a kind of weird summer where we didn't have books shipped for like two months and just last week we had 19 books shipped to stores in one day so that was uh <gasps> Yeah, that's a lot. Because usually, you know, we we barely get two in at a store, you know, weekly. So we're doing good if that's happening. But 19 is amazing because that was like three issues of horror comic ship, two issues of exciting comic ship. It was, uh, it was crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, looking at how, and again, I, you know, I am an outsider looking in, in terms of the retail side of the comic book industry, but when I see how things are affected by the market and things happening in the things happening in the world, I, you know, 
I promised myself I was going to stop talking about 9-11, but it's the most easy, it's the easiest reference to make. Uh, when 9-11 hit, of course, a lot of shipping uh, got delayed qu- quite a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, different uh, weather things, different uh, holidays, you know, sometimes dates get pushed around. Um, you know, do, does that happen a lot with you guys in terms of, hey, we've got a you know, in planning, you know, the release of certain books, does that, does that factor into how you guys structure a, a a series or a mini series uh, moving forward? Yeah, it does. And uh, we've had, you know, we have this one book uh, published uh, called uh, Gold Digger and, you know, it's almost on issue 300, which is a very big deal. And um, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and during COVID, like, um, you know, uh, although COVID is still going, you know, but in the early days and up to now, um, it, you know, we print overseas. So a lot of the ships carrying our books were delayed in LA Harbor and all that stuff. And, um, yeah. uh, so this book that is nearing 300 was getting six months behind where, you know, he would, we would turn in a book in November and it's not shipping till June or July, you know? Yeah. And, and really, I think, uh, we just shipped like two or three issues of that last week. So we're catching up. So I've had to um, tell the guy working on it, Fred Perry, I was like, look, you know, we're going to slow down on putting the book out, but you keep going, you know, you keep turning in a book, we'll send it to the printer. And eventually we'll just close that gap so that when we tell a retailer, you know, this book will be in stores in, in May, it will be, you know, which is the issue 300, it will be in May. So that's a very big deal that issue 300 is in stores though, when we say it's going to be. Stores. Right, right. That's such so, a, such a landmark issue oh, yeah. number Th- those those you know once you get past you know the first i would say i would say you know once you get past that first hundred it's kind of those those hundred uh yeah. those number hundreds books are those are big deals those are really big deals i know yeah. um wasn't it spawn just had its 300 not too long ago and of course yeah. Detective yeah. Detective is up over a thousand now yeah yeah um the the, the thing that's really incredible about Gold Digger being near 300 is it's one guy. He wrote and drew and colored everything. Get so, out of town. Well, not, not colored everything, but he wrote, drew, inked, and lettered everything. Wow. So, so like, there was one guy from the 70s that did that on a book called Cerebus, you know, Dave Sim. Yes. And, but he had a helper that helped, you know, do the backgrounds and ink a lot of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. although he, he published a bunch. Spawn has had multiple artists, multiple writers. You know, McFarlane hasn't worked on every issue, although he's oversaw, you know, overseen everything. Right. So, so our book, Gold Digger by Fred Perry, it's his book, really. You know, he's going to be the first guy to do 300 issues on his own, you know. Wow. And uh, uh, not to take away anything from any of the people, you know, Dave Sim was able to publish it, self-publish oh. You know, uh, although we provide the publishing resources, you know, we'll take it and publish it. You know, we're still a small publisher. We got three or four employees, you know, it's very tiny. Yeah. So, so getting that book, you know, to the printer was you know, just one step that, Fred didn't have to do so it's not that big a deal you know? no that's great right? but but him doing 300 issues is still a massive undertaking and uh it's gonna you know um mcfarland got the world record for 300 issues but that was like 300 superhero issues you know uh, right. we're, gonna, we're gonna try to talk to the guinness book of world record and see if fred can get one for just a massive 300 you know that's that's incredible. yes yes absolutely oh gosh yes um what yeah. t- so for people, so for, for people who don't know, cause I do recall like last time we spoke the idea of this 
art form um, is still uh, largely misunderstood. And and we will get to Star Trek eventually, I promise. Uh, <laughs> but hold on, uh, hold on <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. And I will tie it into some Star Trek stuff here. But uh, for folks who don't know, like comic books just don't happen. Like there's usually there's usually a team of people and it's usually at least it's at least two or three. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually, you know, I mean, if you crack open an issue, anything that's just hit the stands, it's usually half a dozen names or more is is the standard, I think. But for folks who don't know, how rare is it, because you fall into this category, how rare is it that someone writes and does the art for their own, for their own book? Yeah, no, it's still pretty rare. I I would say, I mean, some kind of a fake percentage number i'd say like maybe 10 percent of comics are still you know are, are ever you know uh, one writer one artist you know right so rare very rare yeah and, and i'll be honest i think that i think that number is generous <laughs> like it's it's slim i mean if yeah. you're talking if you're talking one writer and one artist the those those numbers are those numbers are low to begin with if you're talking one writer who is also the artist i think you might be able to rattle off a handful, maybe two handfuls, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's extremely rare, especially for the you know Marvel DC or something. I mean, I can yeah. I can maybe think of five guys that have ever written and drawn anything on their own. You know, like Frank Miller, like the, their names you would know, like George Perez, Frank Miller, John Byrne. You know, yeah, uh, like like legends. You know, uh, uh, anybody else doing that? That's that's. I mean. Adam Warren, maybe maybe you can add a few more names here and there, but that's pretty incredibly rare, you know. I, I uh, mean, and again, aside from yourself, um, I think uh, I hate Wonderland by Scotty Young. Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe uh, the White Knight stuff from. Oh yeah. Uh, 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 I call him a Soundgarden. <laughs> Soundgarden Murphy. He's full of rock yeah. and roll. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sean Gordon Murphy. <laughs> Yeah, Sean Gordon Murphy. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's such a rare thing to to have that. I count myself very lucky that the comic that I worked on, I found a young lady who was willing to do pencils, inks, colors, letters, mm-hmm. you know, and all yeah. I had to do was write it. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's it's tricky. So, um, staying in the realm of comics, are you? So this is kind of a two part question. Um, did you read many Star Trek comics? coming up and if are you reading any comics now that people should check out uh, aside from everything at antarctic press well uh, and also like are you are you looking forward to the star trek relaunch uh that's happening very soon uh the star trek relaunch for for what uh for what's uh, that so they're relaunching um there so they did episode or episode they did issue 400 from idw oh, uh, Oh yeah, yeah. And no, I yeah, I saw the new Strange New World comic from IDW. Like, uh, I saw a cover for that. Yeah, sure. they've got a Strange New World coming. They, uh, I think they're on. I want to say issue two or three of Lower Decks. Yeah, and I no, I've, think, I've been up with that. That's really great. I and I, I'm kicking myself because I let that go by and now I can't find issue one. But um, they're 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 starting a new 
Star Trek series. Oh, and it's, yeah. it's yeah, it's just it's Star Trek number one. And from what I can tell, it's Cisco with oh, yeah, yeah, Data like Spock and uh, yeah, and a couple of other like familiar yeah. faces. And uh, there's supposed to be there's supposed to be a series coming where Worf is the captain of the Defiant, and it's oh. kind of uh, it was described to me as Star Trek's x-force like they are going on like deep cover missions and stuff like that uh wow. i'm super pumped i don't know if you've if you're no, those those sound amazing i uh I, I have less and less time these days to uh be reading and checking out stuff but when yeah. i do I, I love to check out the star trek stuff uh i was reading the star trek comics you know like i said last time the uh in the newspaper during the you know when motion picture was coming out but my first memory really of drawing was um you know, drawing the Enterprise from the Star Trek Gold Key comic books, you know. Yes. Uh, uh, but then, like, when I got a little older, you know, the Star Trek motion picture came out. I was reading it in the newspaper, then the comic series came out. So I was getting those. And then in 82, you know, DC Comics was able to publish a Star Trek series for years and years. And I, I was picking up all that stuff. Because, I mean, I picked up as much Star Trek. If I found any Star Trek thing, comic book, anything in a store, so I was like, it was rare, you know. Um, for me to find it. And uh, there's a book series called uh, Trek, where it was like a bunch of fan articles that was published in a magazine, which I've never seen, but they would reprint the magazine into a book and I'd find those. And uh, man, I, I was picking those up in the early 80s. And you know, I love that series. I thought, you know, I was like, if I could ever find these publishers, you know, of that book, I was just going to, you know, hug them and kiss them or something. I love that series. <laughs> And uh, I thought they were really far away. And just like a year ago, I looked it up and they were in Houston. I was oh. like, what? Because I was from Texas. I was like, well, how, how did I miss that? You know, but oh man, if I would have, if I knew that in the 80s, I would have went on a road trip, you know, Gen X where you're just walking across the country or something. Of course. Yeah. I would have tracked those guys down. But oh uh, man. Yeah. So I missed that date. Because, uh, you know, they had just died, you know, a few years back or some of the guys that were working on the original trick book so that would have been cool to to, to meet him yeah you know uh i recently picked up alan j porter's uh star trek's uh star trek a comics history wow and it is fascinating it is a really really great book i'll put the link uh i'll put the link in the show notes if anybody's curious and you know uh about that particular slice of trek fandom it's a really great resource for folks even if you're uh, just more of a casual fan. If you're into comics and comic history, there's tons of it in there. Um, but, you know, speaking about Star Trek and Star Trek history, the episode that we watched and are going to cover today is the definition of Star Trek history. Like, this is it. This is the beginning. This is this was the first thing that people, uh, that people saw or that a few people saw and that NBC was like, Oh, I don't know about all this. <laughs> do you remember, do you remember a first viewing of the cage? I absolutely do remember a first viewing of the cage. I was at a convention in the eighties, early eighties and Gene Roddenberry was there and he had the, the 16 millimeter print of it and was showing it. And he had the booth reel and the cage. Get and out yeah, of town. Yeah, I I heard about the kid, you know, because I saw the menagerie and where they mixed it into two episodes of the original series. But right. I'd always heard about this episode being, you know, cut up into the two. Yeah, and and then 
he came to a convention and brought it with him. And I was like, I lost my mind. I was so excited to sit in a room and he was up on a stage and gave a presentation about it. And he came and sat down with everybody and watched it with us. And I mean, it was uh, mind blowing. Dude, dude, that is, that's so cool. Like, oh man. Uh, Yeah. For, for, for folks who don't realize, I, I think the idea of like what happens at a convention nowadays is very different than how it used to be like the the internet wasn't really a thing youtube wasn't a thing you had to go to a convention and you might get the creator of your favorite whatever showing up and like hey here's the blooper reel here's the uncut episode here's the new trailer here's the whatever and it wasn't just downloaded to your phone like you had to go sit in a room with a bunch of other nerds (laughs) yeah i i I, you know i i can't even believe how i found out about it i mean this was early 80s and i I mean i was shopping at a comic book store i mean maybe they had a flyer for it and it's like if it wasn't for that flyer or I think it was part of a Star Trek fan club. Maybe I got, maybe I got something at the time, but I don't know how I found out about this show. But you know, my parents drove me to Dallas and dropped me off for the whole day. You know, <laughs> and I just got to see this thing that was like so rare because he rarely did that. You know, I mean, there's stories of him going around the country with that with that 16 millimeter print, and it was black and white. He, they they had believed that the color print was lost forever, and it was only a year later that he found it. And um, uh, I have no clue how I found out that I, you know, cause I went there to see him, you know, and, um, yeah. it was a very big, very big deal in the eighties to, uh, to get that, uh, experience, you know? Yeah. And it's so funny to me that even in looking up, you know, the, the, the small slice of history that we're going to give on this episode is nothing compared to the volumes of information that is out there floating around about this particular episode and it's it's still funny to me that even though it was filmed in uh 64 i think yeah. is when they filmed yeah he wrote it in 64 i think they filmed it in 64 65 or something yeah, yeah i think it was right around that time um that it never really truly saw the light of day until vhs in the mid to late 80s where people finally were able to sit and watch it and i was just like oh man if this had you know, a decade or two later, like this would have been, this would have been, oh, and here's the other thing. And it's just, it would have, it would have just been put out there as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but, this, this is fascinating to me. Yeah. It, it almost may have lost some specialness if it was later, you know, but at that time it was like, you know, I mean, even Runner, he was like, I have no clue where the original print is. This will never be in color. The only time you'll see it is this black and white print. You know, and and then then they found the color version. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Even the black and white print, I think it was black and white until the scenes that were used in the menagerie, and then it was colored. And then they went back to black and white, and it was it was crazy. It almost wow. it almost sounds like a like an art house, yeah, type real almost like a fan cut of just like hey we found this piece and this piece and this piece and we've stuck it all together and it kind of makes sense here it is <laughs> yeah that, that's absolutely incredible thinking about that and then that you know there's maybe a couple hundred people in that room like yeah uh, i mean i imagine if that happened today like oh my god it'd be packed you know with people or you know if if, it, if they just had it unveiling online there'd be you know hundred thousand people watching it across the world or something you know oh, yeah you and, know 
This and then he was like having to basically sell it out of the out of his car, just traveling the country to, to campuses yeah. and conventions. And I mean, there, you know, it's it's so funny because we think about it. It's like, oh my god, it's Star Trek. How could you say no to Star Trek? But there wasn't Star Trek at this point, and you know, this was kind of this was the process of creating television, like. You had a couple guys uh, in a in a smoky filled writers room cranking out scripts on on a typewriter. Yeah, there wasn't Microsoft Word. <coughs> Sorry, I get very excited about all this. Yeah, let's take a drink. That's, we're overwhelmed by the Star Trek mystery. Yes, <clears throat> but this was the process. Like you know, you you went and knocked on doors, and you sl- and you quite literally slid copies under the door, or you. You sweet talk to the secretary and like, hey, put this on his desk there, sweetheart. You know, nobody has eyes like yours. And uh, I'd like to get those eyes on this script. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And, you know, even George Lucas, when he sold Star Wars, you know, he went to um, Comic-Con the year before to show off some clips. And he's like, please go see this movie next year. You know, even uh, even Marvel, when they first saw it, they were like, well, we'll do a comic, whatever. Like, they didn't even think it was a big deal, but. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's, it's crazy the the garage, you know, the garage band days. Like Metallica used to tour the country with, you know, with tapes in their trunks and stuff, trying to trying to sell them. Oh yeah, you know, uh, you, th- uh, on the music side, uh, the music side and the stand up comedy side are actually very similar. Where it's it's uh, someone with a box of CDs or, yeah. or or tapes in the back of their car, and they drive to the next gig and. Hey, I, I'm so and so, and here's my thing. Da 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 da. Okay, I'll be in the back with uh, copies of my whatever. Please stop in, say hello, buy a tape, buy a CD, oh, help me get yeah. to the next city. <laughs> uh, yeah, that reminds me of uh, you know Loretta Lynn just passed away. You know, a country singer and stuff. And, and uh, yeah. you know, Col- Coal Miner's Daughter was like the first movie I ever saw on VHS. My dad was able to you know 1980 rent a VHS or a Betamax machine and we got to watch the Betamax of Cold Miner's Daughter and he, I guess he took it back to wherever he rented it from. Or but, uh, you know, in that story, you know, uh, her and her husband just driving around the country stations around the country trying to get them to play the the, the, the real the real or whatever, you know. And, and they were driving and they heard it, you know, one of the stations they stopped at actually played it and they were still able to listen to it. And, yeah. Uh, you know, her, her first song or something. And, uh, what an amazing time, you know, that to meet these creators of all kinds of you know music uh you know uh comedian out going around doing the same thing you know uh, yeah I, artists you know, and, yeah artists do the same thing hell uh, yeah it seems like Actors. a lot of artists are still a lot of artists still do that i mean I yeah, the with, side I hustle <laughs> yeah the side hustle you got it you got to make it work you got you know you've got your You've got your material ready to go, but you've also got your banner that has your name and your picture. And, uh, you know, you also have your merch that's ready to go, usually in like a milk crate type scenario. Yeah. <laughs> like, please, please help me get to the next show. Uh, yeah. You know, and we, you know, we've been talking for the past few minutes about the production side. That's not even talking about stuff that happened in front of the camera where you had a lot of young, hungry actors who saw this as maybe this will see the light of day. Not really sure. It it takes place in space on a ship. There's some aliens, I think. I don't know. Maybe it'll be something. And it turns out to be the, 
arguably the science fiction franchise in this country mm. arguably i mean it's it's that or it's that or star wars and <laughs> you know star trek's been around longer i think at this point the longevity is uh you know deeper um you know we i just had a conversation with uh jerry antimano about uh doctor who and i i've spoken with a few folks from england who are also trek fans and you know talking about uh how Star Trek is very much the American Doctor Who. And it's it's so fascinating to think that there's a few franchises of different things in different mediums that sort of end up shaping pop culture in a way. Like Star Trek takes place 400 years in the future uh, from 1960, you know, from 1966. But, uh, you know, to think that that, kind of shaped a lot of things in terms of television production in terms of uh technology that was developed from fans who were you know inspired by star trek to create things like a bluetooth headset or uh an ipad or uh, a communicate you know a flip phone yeah those were all in star trek Uh, but yeah, it's so fast. Well, you know, folks, uh, we've, we've, uh, we've talked a lot about Star Trek so far, uh, and especially getting into some of the details about the pilot episode, this episode, the cage. Uh, but before we go any further, let's get to this week's recap brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, Rev J, Jerry Antimano, Cosmic Crit, Kitty B, and David Willett. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Before Kirk, there was another captain of the Enterprise. My name is Christopher Pike, commander of the space vehicle Enterprise. Witnessed the first voyage. Mr. Spock here. And relived a mission. Let me please you. That launched the entire Trek universe. Try anything at all. Break your neck. Your ship. We'll destroy it. Star Trek. Under the command of Chris Pike, Enterprise receives a radio distress call from Talos 4. The landing party discover a camp of survivors from a scientific expedition that's been missing for 18 years. Among the survivors is a beautiful young woman named Venus. Great. Pike is caught off guard by her beauty and is captured by the Talosians, a race of humanoids with bulbous heads who live beneath the planet's surface. Sucks! It's revealed that the distress call and the crash survivors, except for Vina, are illusions created by the Talosians to lure Enterprise to the planet. While imprisoned, Pike uncovers the Talosians' plan to repopulate their ravaged planet using him and Vina as breeding stock for a race of slaves. The Talosians use their power of illusion to try to interest Pike in Vina and present her in various guises and settings. A Rigelian princess, a loving, compassionate farm girl, a seductive, green-skinned Orion, Pike resists all forms. After an earlier landing party failed to gain entry from the surface, six members of the Enterprise crew prepared to beam into the Talosians' underground complex, but only Number One and Yeoman Colt, both women, materialize in Pike's cell to offer further temptation. 
Pike discovers that primitive human emotions can block the Telosian's ability to read his mind, and the three manage to escape to the surface. The Telosians confront the three before they can transport back to Enterprise. Pike tries to negotiate, but number one sets her weapon to overload. Pike and Vina move closer to her, agreeing with her preference for death rather than captivity. Vina explains if the Telosians have even one human, they might try again. This demonstration of fatal resolve confirms what the Telosians have been gleaning from the records they've accessed from Enterprise's computers. Humanity despises captivity far too much to be useful. Despite their last hope having been proven unsuitable, the Telosians are not vengeful. Number one and Colt beam up immediately, but Pike remains behind with Vina, urging her to leave with him. Vina explains that an expedition had indeed crash-landed on Talos IV. She was the sole survivor, but was badly injured. The Telosians were able to save Vina, but as they had no understanding of human physiology or aesthetics, she was left horribly disfigured. With the aid of the Telosians' illusions, Vina's able to appear beautiful and in good health, as much to herself as anyone else. How convenient! In an act of goodwill, the aliens show him that Vina sees an image of Pike next to her, and they walk up to the entrance that takes them into the Telosian habitat. Realizing that the continued Telosian illusion of health and beauty is necessary for Vina, Pike beams up after the Keeper's closing words, She has an illusion, and you have reality. May you find your way as pleasant. Hey folks, just wanted to take a second to let you know we here at Computer Resume Podcast are currently raising money for a family in need. This is a family Kat and I know personally, and they really need as much help as we can all give. But in the meantime, please click the link in our bio on Instagram or Twitter and hit that top link for more details. Thanks everyone. Now, back to the show. So when I actually got to go on Red Shirts podcast, which is a podcast out of the UK, this is the episode we discussed. And part of what we were discussing with that was that Pike seems to have a little bit of PTSD from his previous adventures, eventually leading him into the cage uh, where He's having to draw upon those painful memories and painful experiences and painful human emotions as a way to break free of the Telosian's control. Any uh, thoughts about what Pike is actually experiencing here? Well, I totally uh, get what, you know, this is an important episode that you know, it, it starts off and the entire crew is already wounded. You know, the, the navigator's got his hand in the bandage and Spock's got a limp, you know. Yep. Um, they're all torn up. Yeah. And, you know, and the doctor's like, you know, Captain, you need a vacation kind of thing, you know. And he's like, I know, we just got to keep going forward, you know. It's, it's the next step, next step. And in a way, you know, they're taking Pike and sticking him in a cage. Like, you know, if you're afraid of being out there of doing all the adventures you have been doing let's protect you you know let's take you out of your environment and stick you in a cage and you every every dream will be given to you and he's like no i would rather have the danger you know and the risk of death than have everything given to me 
unearned, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a weird parable that, um, very fascinating that, that he's placed in that position. You know, it's like, you know, a lot of people live their lives where they're like, oh, it's too dangerous. I don't want, maybe, you know, maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I don't want to leave my house today. You know, <laughs> like, like me, I'm inside 24 hours a day. Like I never go outside because it's just work, 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 or stay here, read a book or something. Right. It's like, I mean, there's days and weeks I don't go outside. And it's like, you know, uh, I have to force myself to venture forth and go outside. You know, it's like, um, it, it, which, man, I could go off on this episode, but, and, and we will get there in a minute. But, you know, it, it's really interesting that they did give him the thing where it's like, okay, you've been in danger. Let's take you out of danger. Everything's a dream. And he's like, I would rather, I'd rather not, oh, I could not live that way. You know, that's, that's Pike's character to a T is like, give me the risk. And, you know, skipping ahead to, you know, strange new worlds or whatever, you know, he sees his future and he's like, I would rather have that than live in a dream home, you know, live in a dream environment and in an artificial uh, reality, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and that is everything that this episode is about. And go ahead. I'll I'll get back to you. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me how the cage, you know, in, in terms of the chronology, sort of comes at a point where we've got some info about the Federation uh, from what we've seen in Enterprise. And then we've got a little bit more with uh, the short trek Q&A. We actually were talking a little bit about this uh, before we started to roll. Um, how in looking at the characters of number one and Spock, they behave in a certain way in this that is different from the next time we see them. And if you kind of understand that while this is the first chapter in a franchise spanning 50 years, over 50 years, coming up close to 60 years, um, you know, these these were choices made by either the writer, the director, the actors. But now that we've got that as a starting point and we've expanded in both directions, now we're kind of seeing the things that led up to the moment. Um, I believe there's a character actor, uh, Stephen Tobolowsky, who talks about the moment before. And for The Cage, the moment before, in terms of what is available to the fans at this point, the moment before is Q&A, where we see Spock step on the Enterprise for the very first time, smiling. And number one takes him to task, like, did I see you smile? But you know what? She's tough as nails, too. And we see, you know, through the course of Q&A, we see their guard get let down. And we see some genuine connection there. And while it's not necessarily expanded on in this particular episode in the cage, we see their interactions that will eventually lead us to their interactions aboard the USS Discovery and eventually uh, in their own series on Strange New Worlds. Um, I think it is fascinating going back to what you were talking about, about how uh how pike chooses the pain over over the pleasure um i i come from a a martial arts background where in my generation coming up in martial arts 
practicing the techniques was fine. And we, you know, we go through the motions, we go through the forms, we go through the movements, we practice, we practice, we refine, we practice some more. But when it came time to sparring and going toe to toe with somebody, that's where you saw people come alive. Uh, At least the folks that I came up with who they couldn't wait till Saturday morning sparring class. That's that's we lived. We survived Sunday through Friday to get to Saturday and just beat the snot out of each other. And we loved it. We loved every second of it. And, uh, you know, things, you know, different mindsets change. Things change. The world changes. Um, it's not always that way anymore, but I think there are some areas that still prefer this, uh, you know, it may, it may not be such a literal pain that is preferred, but, you know, in terms of working in an office, uh, you know, some people prefer to be under tight deadlines, uh, rather than having a bunch of creative freedom or time to, uh, to really work on a project. They prefer those really tight, uh, almost impossible deadlines. And they feel like they get their best work out that way. Um, I don't know that I'm one of those people, <laughs> but uh, you know, have, have you experienced this in your life? A, a, a choosing, choosing a pain as opposed to choosing a, a pleasure or, uh, or, or something that is of ease. Yeah, yeah. Um, to step back just for a moment, as you you know, you were saying several things that remind me of lines that Kirk have said. Kirk says later, you know, risk is our business. He also said he needs his pain in Star Trek Five. You know that it sums up his character. Yes. You know, um, uh, you know there's a lot of athletes. I watch tons of athletic, you know, documentaries about athletes and stuff like that. You know, um, the HBO series, the Hard Knocks, where they cover you know each season of football or whatever. Of course, love and, those series. And all these football champion athletes from every field, soccer, you know, women's basketball, everything, always, always say, you know, the pain gets them through, you know, uh, the pain, you have to get through the pain to get to the next level, you know? Yeah. And, and Will Smith has that line where, you know, um, he said, teach your children to run because they'll, you'll always hear that voice in your head saying, I can't do it. I, I'm hurting. My legs hurt. This cramps, you know, this hurts, that hurts. And you will always give into that voice unless you learn how not to listen to it. And if you don't, you know, like he's like, like you run. So you squash that voice in your head and you keep going. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's that's definitely what's driving this episode is, you know, uh, uh, that, vo- you know, the voice literally is the Telosians in Pike's head saying, you know, you're kind of stressed. Let us take all your burden. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. I would rather have my burden. I would rather have the pain than, than, uh, than, than not. Yeah, it's kind of uh, it's it's a little like Fight Club. It, yeah. You know, part of part of that mentality makes me think of uh, Chuck Palahniuk's Fight Club. Um, which if, I mean, the movie is incredibly popular, but if you're out there and have never seen the movie, go watch it. It's great. The book is pretty damn close to the movie. Uh, and I highly recommend it cause it's a, it's a brilliant piece of fiction and, uh, the structure of storytelling. But in that there is a point where, um, the characters are talking to, some individuals who have decided to follow them. And I'm going to do my best to sort of 
be, uh, you know, steer clear of spoilers here um, for those who have not seen or read Fight Club. But uh, some of the characters are talking to individuals who have decided to follow them in their endeavor. But they are giving them not encouragement, but actually discouragement. And they're actually sort of forcing these folks to work through that uh, discouragement, um, being forced to stand on to stand outside the door and not letting them in quite literally in that story, forcing them to stand outside and telling them that they're not good enough to come inside and make them stand out there for days on end. Uh, and then once they're inside, they put them to work. Uh, and then eventually, and while they are working, telling them that they are not special, that they, uh, that they are not an individual unique snowflake, that they are the same decaying organic matter as everything else, you know, putting these things in their heads. Um, and it makes me think of something I used to do when I, when I taught people martial arts, (laughs) we, you know, I was in charge of a group and I said, okay, go get your, uh, go get your sparring gear bags. And I saw their eyes light up and I was, yeah, go get your bag, the the whole bag, just bring the whole bag. They said, okay. I was like, all right, now get into your horse stance. And you, you know, they, they, you know, separate their feet and, you know, sort of squat down like they're riding a horse. I said, okay, now take your bag in both hands and hold it straight out in front of you. They're like, okay, all right. And I said, I'll let you know when you can stop. Mm-hmm. And just and and watching the watching the arms start to shake and watching the hands start to drop. And I could see, and I would go around to a couple of people. I go, where are you right now? And they're like, I'm thinking about the ocean. I said, don't think about this. And I would actually grab their wrists for a second. I said, think about this. There's a few things that you will have in life. Pain is one of them and nobody can take it from you. (laughs) And you saw a couple of, uh, you saw a couple of eyes get wide of like that philosophy of like, oh, this is my pain. This is, this is something that I, that I'm in control of. Like I can, I can choose to stay here and fight or I can fight through this or I can, you know, focus on it and, and I become its master. You know, I'm, I'm allowing this pain to stay here. That's an interesting philosophy. And, um, you know, while it's, you know, while they didn't really get into it that heavily in the cage, uh, I do feel like they sort of scratched the surface of that, you know, uh, and maybe they didn't think people would be analyzing this thing, uh, you know, nearly 60 years later, but yeah. here we are. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a scene where, you know, they give a, they give Pike a, a little blue a vial of a liquid and it's like, it's got all the proteins you'll need, you know, you just need to eat it. Uh, we just want to keep you alive. He's like, well, what if I don't, don't drink it? You know, like, what are you going to do to me now? He's like, well, we can't force you to do anything, but we'll make you feel what hunger feels like, you know, and they, they show him burning in flames, you know, yep. and he's sees screaming. And uh, it was a, they had a weird line of like, a, you know, this is from a fable you read as a kid. And it's like, well, it's, it's very interesting that the fable he read as a kid, a film burning, which may be hell, who knows, sure. but um, is his eventual ending where he's, you know, he gets burnt as a person, and, you know, he's living in a wheelchair, you know, or a, a, a tomb, basically, he's living in a casket, yeah. you know, um, it's it's crazy that they gave that to him as a little glimpse of you know what's to come and he's like okay i'll drink i'll drink the liquid you know <laughs> you don't have to keep me burning you know uh, making me feel hunger I, w- I will drink this thing you know right. but uh, but he had to get to that point where he feels the burn and he's like all right i'll drink it you know but 
uh, which is kind of like a reward for him, I guess, in that in that moment. You know, he's like, let me just drink the blue juice. <laughs> it's like yeah. the fire, the fire's uh, not cool at all. You know? but, yeah, we we can offer you one of two things: the carrot or the stick. You know, well, what if I don't want the carrot? Then you get is, the stick. Bam. Okay, I'll is, take the carrots. <laughs> yeah, that is that is total a Star Trek lesson. You know, later, you know, the, um, Kirk meets some aliens, and they're like, oh, "You want to be our friends, all right? But let let us show you what it's like to be our enemy before we t- show you what it's like." <laughs> Oh, you know, yeah. and then they're like zapping him. He's like, ah! you know, but uh, that's a, that's always a lesson, you know, in Star Trek is you get the you get the the rod before the carrot, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, which goes back to your training, you know. It's you gotta you gotta fight through the fire before you get through the to the dessert, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I think I talked about this a little bit uh, as we were discussing uh, Captain Archer and his progression uh, through you know, the, the show enterprise in looking at why he is so revered as this great captain. When he made a lot of mistakes, he went through a lot of pain. He, you know, he, (laughs) there were times where we were like, Oh, can we get anybody else in the captain's chair? (laughs) But, you know, I kept coming back to this, uh, this phrase, you know, how you get diamonds pressure. Mm. and that that is this in a nutshell it's like okay here's the pressure what are you going to do mm. and you know what what are the what are the choices you're going to make and you know what we what we don't see with this is the pressure pike was under before talus four mm. we get some glimpses of it and he talks about it with the doctor for a little while but for for <sighs> Pike Pike's ready to quit. Pike's ready to quit at the beginning of this episode. I don't think people realize like he's kind of over it. Yeah. You know, we see, uh, you know, Kirk is kind of at a crossroads uh, there in Wrath of Khan. You know, he's become an admiral and he's kind of, okay, this, this is the life. This is what we do. This is what we go through. You see Chris Pine do the same thing in uh, Star Trek Beyond, where he says, you know, life has become very episodic. He opens the he opens the closet and it's nothing but gold jerseys, just evenly spaced. You know, uh, it's he's walking around with the coffee cup, just kind of. All right. What adventures are we get into today? He's over it. But we saw the progression. We saw the progression of Shatner's uh, Kirk and we saw the progression of. Uh, Chris Pine's Kirk, and uh, you know we we even saw that with uh, with Picard and Cisco for for a few times. You know, uh, Captain's uh, Captain's Holiday, where he comes back and Riker's like, "Hey, great job on that diplomacy thing," and Picard grunts at him and walks away, like, "Oh yeah, he's kind of over it. Yeah, he needs vacation for sure." Pike is at a point where he's ready to take off the com badge or patch at that point. Um, and just turn it in and be like, you know what? I'm going to go ride horses in Montana or, or wherever. And just, yeah. I'm done. I'm over it. But, you know, we see that, I mean, we know that that's, this doesn't end up being the case. I think this is where, I think this is where the mythology gets expanded on. Like we've said, you know, it, 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 we, we've gone back with uh, Q&A and of course, Enterprise. And then we know that they show up in Discovery and eventually strange new worlds. But when this sits by itself, 
um, up till uh, up till the mid 90s, up until the early 2000s. This chapter of Star Trek sat by itself for a long, long time. But now we've expanded in both directions. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer this chapter by itself or do you prefer this as a chapter in an expanded universe? Um, I prefer this in a chapter of an expanded universe. I love this episode as its own. I mean, yeah, I could live in the thought of this one episode. Yeah. But um, as you were talking, it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, the the same things going on with V'ger in Star Trek the motion picture. You know, it's like I've done the same. I've done everything I was supposed to do. Is this all I am? Is this nothing more? You know, and the it, and that may be a driving theme in all of Roddenberry's writing, but uh, a driving theme in all of fiction is change is life. You know, like a World War Z. It's like movement is life. You know, you, you, if you stay still, you will die. Yeah. And that's a thing that goes on. You know, I, I was just reminded of it this week. I, I watched so much. Uh, I watched so much <laughs> TV, media, and sports. Everything this week, I can't even remember what this was from. But it was, <laughs> it was uh, the point that you know, it's probably Lord of the Rings, where they, you know, uh, Gandalf was talking to uh, Frodo or uh, Bilbo. But he's like, you know, it's a luxury to not have change. But it's also, and uh, a lesson from this episode is like when dreams. When, you know, the aliens tell Pike when dreams become more important than reality, you give up uh, travel, building, creating, even forgetting how to repair the machines left behind by your ancestors. And um, that's a that's a thing like uh, from Lord of the Rings. You know, it's like we don't get a stay put. You know, nothing gets to stay put. Everything is changed, you know. And uh, I want the change, what good or bad, whatever comes next, give it to me. I, w- I want more of it, you know. And uh, even like this last year, you know, six months ago, I just moved to San Francisco, you know, it's like I've lived in, I mean, I've moved my whole life, uh, like 50 times I've moved, you know, before I hit 50. And yeah. uh, this last year, I was like, I've lived in the same spot for 12 years. Like I've never in my life lived in one, one spot for 12 years. Wow. So I was like, I, I gotta go. You know, I've been in the same, like I hadn't left my apartment in months, you know, during COVID and nothing. I yeah. just kept food delivered, groceries delivered, everything I needed got delivered. I was like, I haven't left this square, tiny little apartment. And I was like, I was like, screw that. I'm just going to go and act up. I told my boss, you know, moving to San Francisco, uh, I'll, I'll be there in a week or whatever. I found a place and moved to San Francisco. And, but it's like, uh, you got to keep, you got to keep moving. You got to keep rolling. And that's the thing about running. You got to keep going, you know, don't stop, you know, stopping is, Although, I mean, granted, people do sit in one spot, you know, they, they do can live a life in one spot. I'm saying for me personally, for characters in some fiction, change is a consistent need, you know, a driving force. And um, so that's why I want more and more different Star Trek. You know, I, I love what I got and I will remember it fondly. I have that type of memory where I can just, I mean, the whole show can play out right here in front of me and I can see everything around like a hologram, holodeck. Nice. And, yeah. um, uh, sometimes I'm staring at blank walls, but I see everything I've ever done, you know? Oh, of course. Yeah. And so I can carry that with me, but uh, change, change, change. I'm all for change. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Bobby Brady song. You know, yeah. You know, I'll take it. I'll you know, that's, it. that's an interesting thought. I'm going to, I'm, and I, I think I'm going to carry that with me. It's a luxury to not have things change. And it makes me think of, it makes me think of a lot of folks who, the older generation who long for 
the days gone by or mm-hmm. who are unwilling to adapt to new technology or a lot of those types of things they they want to stay with that luxury the luxury of not having to learn anything new the luxury of not having to expand the luxury of not having to grow to not have to change that's an interesting way to look at it it is a luxury to not change i'm going to remember that um so you actually uh took a bunch of notes I, before we move on i want to make sure that we've gotten to all of your stuff what what else do you have well you know that, that line right there about when dreams become more reality let me say it again when dreams become more important than reality you give up you know travel building creating you know forget how to repair the machines that time my ancestors and that is why to me this episode stands the test of time that's what's going on with like uh I, and i am not ever going to insult a next generation that comes up i'll be i'll be 120 years old and i will love the next generation for all the changes that they bring us you know next generation of people gen x gen y gen alpha you know whatever of course um but it is a warning that you know when we're entering an era with uh, vr headsets and, and all this kind of you know uh, the meta universe wants everybody to be in these goggles so you don't see what's going on in the world around you yeah. you're just living in these constant dreams and they're just going to get better and better and better technology where you know even in the holodecks you know so that is a lesson that don't stay in the holodeck you know get out of there lieutenant barkley you know barkley, yeah. Get, yeah, don't, <laughs> do not live in there you know take those lessons and learn and and change the world around you but don't don't live there just existing you know and that's that's a warning that the Tolosians had was you know we did that and the whole world we blew up the world we just lived in these uh, you know we, we developed our minds that's what they did and so that they could live in these spots and that's why they needed to get pike and more human so they could feed off of their dreams which is covered a little bit in discovery you know they're like and, and, and this is a, a another thing that's come up multiple times in Star Trek was that um, you know there uh, 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 Corby had that uh, you know uh, when uh, oh my God how can I uh, the the dream well they uh, uh, I got too much information downloaded right now uh, no problem that that episode where Chapel goes to the planet and sees Roger Corby and you know uh, uh, that that was the thing with the androids on that planet which you'll cover soon you know when you go to the Star Trek stuff was yeah. that. You know, they blew themselves up and they needed more and more memories to feed off of, you know, yeah. um, and, and, and back to the Telosians, that's what they needed. You know, uh, they, they thought, oh, we'll just let our world go to crap. You know, the outside world was unlivable. They needed humans and human slaves to, to basically repopulate the earth. They said, you know, uh, thousands of generations have passed. They, they just totally just developed their own brain set and let the world go to crap. And now they were like, hey. The, the the surface level is now okay to repopulate you know the radiation's gone all that kind of stuff they're like well we're going to need people to do it but we don't know how you know we we totally forgot how to do that kind of thing yeah. we, will, we will need new people and, and uh getting to that point another reason this episode is so relevant is that in the height of the 60s and in the middle 60s he wrote this episode yeah almost for racist white people it's like, well, how would you feel if you were captured and told, hey, you do what we tell you to do, everything will be fine. You slip up once, we will beat the crap out of you and make you feel fired. And it's interesting, there was no, you know, black people in this episode. This episode is like driving home the point in the middle of the 60s. 
to a white audience was like, what you've done is wrong. And you, you know, you need to take a moment to live in the other guy's shoes. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's why I, this is going to be a time that's up for a long time. Yeah. Um, I, sorry, yeah sorry gosh. <laughs> no, no, that is, that's perfect. Uh, perfect analysis. Very well said. I think there's definitely some, definitely some weight to that. Um and I, yeah, I, you know, I never, I, that, that's not something I had put together. Thank you so much for, for bringing that, for bringing that up. That's such a great perspective. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It, it does have the gravitas. And if you can see through all the surface level, Hey, she's a green, you know, a lot of, a lot of young people are like, I'm not going to go back to watch original Trek because, uh, you know, it's too sexist or whatever. Um, and, and that's a complaint. And, you know, there are a few episodes where it does get like that. This episode has a couple of lines. They're like, Yeesh. you know, right. how, how can you have had that thought? But there's just so much importance in this episode. Um, although some of the sexism stuff could be, you know, you could forgive it in a way because what came before this was, you know, World War Three in Star Trek history. You know, they said in Strange New Worlds, you know, a third of the world was devastated, was destroyed, you know. A third of the world's population died. 600,000 yeah. 600, uh, life forms died on Earth. That's what Pike said in episode one of Strange New World. You know, it's like the world changed. It's not 2022 America trying to, to uh, be more inclusive and, you know, diversity and stuff. This is a world trying to rebuild a population, you know, yeah. and they want to go to the stars. It's like, you don't have enough people on the planet to go to the stars. You've got to make more babies, you know. And maybe that's one of the pipes thing is like, I'm not used to women on my ship because all the women stay on earth, make more babies and the men go to space. You know, it's, it's basically, they recreated humanity from the jump. And it's, you know, um, hunter gatherer society, you know, the men are going out, seeing what's out there, but they're also trying to defend it from, you know, the, the, the Zindi, you know, basically they know the Zindi's out there. They yeah. know the uh, Federation, you know, had a hundred year war with the, or, you know, I had a long war with the Romulans, you know, they, they are constantly under threat. And so it's like ship after ship, they're just sending men out. What's out there? What are the threats we have to pay attention to? Yeah. And that, and that's where Pike's like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. You know, every mission I go on, 16 people are dying. You know, I can't, this is too much, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's funny to think, uh, even from, from TOS to TNG, Picard is at a, point in encounter at four point where he's he's just taken over command of enterprise and one of his first things to will Riker is keep kids away from me i'm not used whereas pike was very much i'm not used to having women on the bridge picard's like i'm not used to having families on the ship like there's another period of change you know where humanity um and the federation have grown so much that now yeah these things are are flying cities where you've got families on board a lot of families they have schools now on board and it's another period of change and picard is an older captain even in encounter at farpoint i mean he's much older now but yeah in encounter at farpoint he is an older captain and this is this is uncomfortable for him where he it's easier for him to go to his to his XO and say, Hey, look, keep kids away from me. I I'm, <laughs> this is not my game. I'm trying to do the best I can, but I need you to keep kids away from me. It's just going to be better for all of us. 
no, that, that is fascinating thinking about that now that, um, you know, Pike was like, I don't want women on the ship. And then Kirk is like, okay, we'll have women on the ship. They'll wear the short dresses, you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, and, and we won't go on all the assignments, you know. Um, uh, you know, standards and practices in the 60s are like women can't punch men. You know, they, they the, the yeomans that did fight or the women that did fight, uh, they only kick, you know, in Star Trek. Uh, and then Pike's like, okay, no children. And then Deep Space Nine is like, okay, well, I have a, sh- a child on my ship, yeah. you know. And then Voyager was like, okay, well, here's a woman that decided not to have children, and she wants to go on a mission, you know. And it's uh, interesting how each next next trek gets another step in the process of basically human evolution as well, you know. Well, yeah. Uh, allowing women, not allowing it, but giving them an opportunity to do more than. And that's all Trip Watson is do more than you told or, or able, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, in again, going back to television production, we see that kind of come around with um, with Enterprise at the end of the TNG era where uh, Archer is having to force himself to deal with somebody he doesn't like right off the bat with T'Pol. He does not trust Vulcans, doesn't think we need a Vulcan on on board. So he, you know, that first big chunk of time is him kind of learning to trust this new science officer and uh, deal with his own with his own issues of mistrust and uh, a a lot of issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, getting into getting into discovery, you know, we're seeing Michael Burnham taking center stage uh first as uh the xo and dealing with uh with her captain georgio and then you know everything that unfolds from there leading up to the jump you know beyond uh you know is a lot of is a lot of interesting things that we're witnessing uh, a woman a woman of color go through that you know has that that has been set the stage has been set with the previous incarnations of within this franchise, but it's so, it's so fascinating to watch, you know, things that have come before and knowing what comes later. And then, and then having this, this pit stop here, this pit, what, what has become a pit stop in the chronology was the starting point and to see where it has unfolded. And when I say unfolded, I mean, bloomed like a flower in every direction in all aspects it has bloomed and i think this is uh this is this is really setting the stage for some of the some of the world's uh biggest fandom type yeah. things the, the, it it starts here it starts here do you have a do you have anything else uh, it's like a mobius strip of infinity you know you, you get back to the point you were at but it's not the same point you know it's yeah. different. you can never go home again you know it's like all the all the lessons are you know at, everything's changed you're changed you know if everything is the same when you get back to it it's not the same to you because you've changed so much you know and and that's that's really interesting that as many checks as you can watch and you come back to this one you'll find something new you find something different you find something that's you know that sets is is a little off because you you've developed so much that when you get back to it and he's like i don't like women on the bridge it's like whoa yeah (laughs) <laughs> uh, that, that did, I didn't, you know, I may have missed that as a kid, but now it's like, okay, you know, let's, let's yeah. find a reason why you know? it hits different. It hits yeah. different today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's good because you realize you have changed where, you know, 
you change so much that okay well that's not cool that's not cool anymore you know it, it's not even cool to just pass it over and just miss it you know yeah. you, you actually have to take it hit the take the hit and be like all right I don't, I don't like that and so going forth i'm going to be different you know uh, yeah it's, it's a little wrong uh there's so much in this episode i love and i'm glad we uh, you know we got to talk to you not uh, you know we didn't even get through half my notes but uh but it's cool. I was just making notes about little uh, little Star Trek things. There was one, um, yeah, how Rigel Seven was like the uh, the planet Ren Fair, you know, where everybody was in the D and D costumes and running around. And the, yeah, that'd be fun to revisit. You know, uh, it was cool during the briefing um, where they're talking about what's going on in the planet and the aliens and all that stuff. And Spock shows a drawing of one of the Telosians. You know? It's like yeah. they didn't they didn't even have an iPhone to take a picture. Somebody, you know, one of the crew. That would be me getting beamed down to the planet. Like I'm, I'm artist private, you know. I'm Sketch going, it out. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, I drew that bubble-headed butt guy. Face, you know, like alien. It's like, okay, let's let's use it on the briefing for the commanding officer. That's that's just hilarious. Oh, that's funny. Uh, yeah, so much cool stuff. Yeah, and you know, there's so much. Uh, there is so much going on here, and I think it is. It would be. Uh, yeah, from everything that you've said and everything that I've seen and continue to notice, I, I feel like I I feel like I notice something new every time I watch the cage. Uh, we could obviously talk about this for a long, long time. Um, but you know, with everything that's going on in this episode, um, it can be easy to forget everyone that's involved. Uh, so I will reiterate that this next segment is said with all the love in the world. Um, we always ask the question, who do we blame? Uh, this episode was written by it's uh Gene Rodenbury. I think I'm I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think uh, it's Gene. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Gene, yeah, Gene Roddenberry. Uh, he was born uh August 19th, 1921, in El Paso, Texas. Not too far, not too far from uh from your old stomping ground there, sir. Yeah, <laughs> the family moved uh, to L.A. in 1923 after Gene's father got a job as a police officer. Uh, Roddenberry majored in police science at Los Angeles City College, where he began dating Eileen Anita Rexrote. Uh, he then enlisted in the United States Army Air Corps on December 18, 1941, and then married Eileen on uh, June 13, 1942. Can we just take a moment to... See that date, June eight or December eight. He joined the Army Air Corps, December eighteenth, nineteen forty-one. Yeah, I was like, geez, that's like eleven days after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, like, and then <laughs> and then uh, he married his uh, Eileen after uh, Midway. You know, yeah, later. yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, a lot of people forget like how much history there was before Star Trek even started. Like how yeah. how much of it you know was funneled through Gene Roddenberry into this this script certainly but in the 80 episodes you know the 79 other episodes that follow this one for sure uh on august 2nd 1943 while flying out of espiritu santo uh roddenberry overshot the runway by 500 feet and crashed into trees crushing the nose and uh starting a fire as well as killing two men bombardier sergeant john p kruger and navigator lieutenant Tal talbert h woolham uh, the official report absolved roddenberry of any responsibility but roddenberry spent the remainder of his military career in the u.s and flew all over the country 
as a plane crash investigator. There's a little bit of irony there for you. Yeah, there's a, 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 a line from this episode, you know, where he's like, I'm, I'm tired of deciding who lives and dies. You know, he made one mistake and lost all these guys. And yeah. you know, tw- 20 years later, while he's writing Star Trek, it's a point to this first episode, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Th- something like that sticks with you for sure. For sure. Uh, in 1945, Roddenberry began flying for Pan Am. Uh, after experiencing his third crash, uh, Gene resigned from Pan Am on May 15, 1948, and decided to pursue his dream of writing, particularly for this new medium called television. Uh, but before that, Roddenberry applied for a position with the LAPD on January 10, 1949, and spent his first 16 months in the traffic division, don't we all, uh, before being transferred to the newspaper unit. Now, this unit became the public information division, and Roddenberry became the chief of police's speechwriter. And while in this cushy job, Gene also became the LAPD liaison to the very popular television series Dragnet. He also did his first TV writing for the show, sort of. He'd take actual cases, boil them down to a short screen treatment, and that would be fleshed out into full scripts by the show's writing staff. Uh, Most of the time, uh, work like this would put a little cash in your pocket, but Roddenberry actually split the fee with the officers who investigated the real-life cases. Uh, So good on him for doing that. His first credited writing gig was actually six episodes of the reboot of Mr. District Attorney from 1954 to 1955. He actually did that under the pseudonym Robert Wesley. Uh, After that, there was 11 episodes of West Point from 56 to 57, 24 episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel from 57 to 63. And then he is credited as the series creator, all 29 episodes of The Lieutenant. From 1963 to 1964, that show would actually include a few familiar faces, Leonard Nimoy, Nichelle Nichols, and Majel Barrett. And of course, he is the creator and occasional writer of all 80 episodes of Star Trek. Uh, But that's not all he did. We'll get to the rest of his career down the line. Uh, This episode was directed by Robert Butler. Uh, Butler was born November 16, 1927 in Los Angeles, California, and graduated from UCLA. His first credit was as an AD on six episodes of Climax from 1956 to 1958. And then his first TV directing gig was three episodes of Hennessy from 1959 to 1960. Then he would also do an episode of Have Gun, Will Travel, two episodes of The Lieutenant, uh, both of which, of course, were uh, co-written by Gene Roddenberry six episodes each of the fugitive and of the original batman with adam west and burt ward i you know something about that original batman series as i get older i see the campiness as just fun with the character did did you always i because you're a little bit older than me but did you have the um was was there a feeling of like oh this is campy it's not real batman uh, did you eventually come around to it or did you always love uh, Batman, the original series? I, I assume you love Batman, the original series. Yeah, I loved all the superheroes. Uh, uh, I love watching Batman and uh, I guess, you know, in the 70s and then the cartoon series. You know, yeah. there's, a, there's a cartoon series uh, every Saturday morning. You know, there's a real, you know, they had a lot of rotoscoping and uh, I love that where they chase over the people and it looked real. Yeah. So, so that was kind of cool. 
and then the Super Friends. And then about 1980, I think MTV showed the Batman movie. And that was the first time I was like, you know, I was probably 10, 11. I was like, okay, this is a little cheesy because the movie's got some silly, really silly stuff in it. Yeah. And uh, I was like, uh, maybe I've outgrown this version of Batman, but the cuts of comics were just building up to the Dark Knight and the Frank Miller stuff. So, of course. So I like, by the time I was like, hey, wait a minute, this is, you know, my teenage self is not going to accept this version of Batman. Then the Dark Knight came out, you know, and I was like, oh, that's Batman. Okay, I got it. You know, but I've always loved any version of Batman. I'm, I'm down for it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is, it's something that has grown on me over time. I really do enjoy it now. And, I've got the 1960s Batman movie on my shelf next to the 40s serials, uh, next yeah. to the the Blu-ray box set of you know Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher stuff. Yeah, it's it's all Batman. It's all good, baby. I love it. <laughs> uh, have you ever seen Adam West and William Shatner in? Um, they made a they made a pilot together right before you know Batman, right before Star Trek. Um, oh my God! It's on. Yeah, you can watch them acting together in on you it's on YouTube. And I, I think it was you know, like Julius Caesar or something. They're they're like togas, you know, that kind of thing. But, oh uh, wow. Yeah, it's kind of cool. There was an idea. Um it might have been I think I had the idea to do this shortly before I pulled the trigger on Computer Resume Podcast. It was going to be a Star Trek Batman crossover analysis of like we're gonna you know the it was going to be in a couple different parts where we talked initially about the the shows in the 60s and where those overlapped in terms of release um and then you know moving forward to the 80s with uh the movies and the um you know some of the some of the more sophisticated shows and then moving more towards the new generation um, and just sort of analyzing each of those periods of these two franchises moving forward through time. Um, but obviously I didn't do that one. I decided to stick solely with Star Trek, but I'm, I've still got, I've still got my notes that I made on that. And, you know, maybe that'll take form somewhere uh, down the line. Yeah. Meanwhile. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I saw a picture on Twitter today. It's been around for years of the meme where they got Adam West Batman on the bridge of uh, the Enterprise with, you know, yes, yes. And two. That's really cool. It would be interesting to see a Batman Star Trek crossover. And you could go so many different versions, but it's like you could have a 1940s era where it's like, Kirk, you know, you got all the scenes of Kirk beaming back in, the, in the, the, a piece of the action where it's like gangster Chicago, you know? Yeah. Uh, that would be interesting. Or to do it where, you know, Batman gets on the board of the Enterprise, you know, uh, and it's all 60s style, you know, 60s Batman. You know, that that would be fascinating. That would be so great. I, I'm, I'm fully on board for that. <laughs> well, uh, so in terms of uh, work within the franchise, this is Robert Butler. Uh, this is his only directing in the franchise. This is the only thing he would ever actually touch. But in 1969, he'd direct his first of four different features for Walt Disney, starring Kurt Russell uh, with Guns in the Heather, followed by uh, The Computer War Tennis Shoes that same year, then The Barefoot Executive in 1971, and Now You See Him, Now You Don't the following year. Uh, in 1973, he won the... Directors Guild of America, uh, the DGA, uh, outstanding directorial achievement in directing in a dramatic series 
for the Waltons, season one, episode 12, Dust Bowl Cousins. That was in 1972. Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he would win three more DGA awards, including the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2015, as well as three primetime Emmys. And you'll notice uh, folks who uh, listen to the show, I started with the date of his birth. And we've gone past his work in the franchise, which usually means for somebody, this would kind of be where I talked about their retirement and them passing away. I don't have that information because he's still alive. He's still, <laughs> his, he was working up till I think 2020 was his last credit. Wow. Um, in fact, uh, I believe when this goes to air, it will be one month past his 95th birthday like (laughs) good on him kudos for sticking around so long uh mr butler you've you've done some wonderful things thank you so much um but anyways in terms of uh some of the stars we've got mr peter durea as lieutenant jose tyler uh he's the guy sitting there at the con with the bandage on his hand uh he was born in july 14 1939 in la he studied math and physics at amherst college in massachusetts before discovering acting his first credit was the donna reed show in 1963 his first film was the carpet baggers in 1964 uh he would also do an episode of the fugitive and this is his only work in the franchise uh after this he would do Lieutenant Robin Caruso, United States Navy in 1966. He had a small role in that. That's actually starring Dick Van Dyke. It's one of my favorite Disney movies from that era. Did you ever see that? No. It It's, it's kind of wild, especially like knowing the story of Robinson Caruso. And then you think Dick Van Dyke, really? Uh, but it is, it is a slice of Disney 60s cheesiness. I, I recommend... Uh, imbibing in whatever vice you prefer and sitting down with some uh, some snacks and uh, watching that sometime. It's yeah, no, that's, that sounds great. Lieutenant <laughs> Robin Crusoe. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's on Disney Plus. That was one of the it was one of the ones that when Disney Plus first came out, I was like, all right, here's a deep cut for you. Let's see if we can find it. And sure enough, they had it. Uh, he, uh, Peter DeRay would also do three episodes of Dragnet 1967 uh, from 1967 to 1969, playing multiple characters. Uh, His last credit was two episodes of Insight, 1972 and 1976. Uh, DeRay had died at his home in Kootenay Lake, British Columbia, Canada. On March 24th, 2013, he was 73 years old. Then we've got Laurel goodwin as yeoman jm colt uh, she was born in wichita kansas on august 11th 1942 her first credit kind of a doozy here girls 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 1962 playing laurel dodge if you've had if you haven't heard of girls 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 she plays the love interest for elvis presley not a bad way to start your career honestly <laughs> um it, it is uh Okay, go ahead. I'm so sorry. Uh, I know she was also, well, uh, Yeoman Rand was in a movie with uh, Marilyn Monroe, you know. Was she? Yeah. And, um, you know, she asked, uh, so that so that was the next episode, right, of Star Trek was, the, well, I mean, when when they started making Star Trek, you know, she asked them to give her the little skirt, you know, instead of the pants. Because uh, all, the, all the women in this show had pants on and uh, she asked for that. That's right. Yeah. Oh, but, Wow. An interesting thing about uh, Laurel Goodwin was she, you know, she did this for 
Gene Roddenberry, and then they started filming the next, you know, the the, the first episode of Kirk's Trek, right? Yeah. But she, she was the one that told them to give Spock the the pony sideburns, and she 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 designed Spock really for for the show. You know, she did oh, yeah. a lot of thoughts about it. And um, and once William Shatner saw the pony sideburns, he said, "Give my character pony sideburns too." Oh, that's funny. Yeah, stole kind of the uniqueness of it. So she's always uh, been upset that Kirk stole some of the stuff she designed for Spock for for Kirk, you know? Oh, Shatner. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez Louise. (laughs) Well, uh, her first TV gig was actually The Virginian uh, in 1964. She did an episode of that show. And then, yeah, this is her only uh, this is her only acting in the franchise. Uh, her last credit was the Dane curse episode 1.1 uh, from 1978 playing Lily Dane Leggett. Uh, Laurel Goodwin died in cathedral city, California, February 25th, 19, uh, 2022. So just mm-hmm. early, earlier this year, she was 79. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, she, she was still talking about that up until the end that she was designing, you know, she designed spots oh that's awesome yeah, yeah just hey hey don't forget don't forget it was me yeah well uh you know they told her she was going to be in the this is you know kirk's version of star trek and then uh that's why she was going to the set and everything and then they're like nope you know this is 10 years later oh man yeah that's too bad that's too bad well then we have uh mr john hoyt as dr philip boyce who was born October 5th, 1905 in Bronxville, New York. He received his bachelor's and master's degree from Yale University. Not too shabby. Uh, then uh, he made his Broadway debut in Overture by William Boletho in 1931. His first credit was OSS 1946 as Colonel Paul Meister. And then he would do 18 more films until his first TV credit, which was Lights Out, season three, episode 41, The Martian Eyes from 1951, starring Burgess Meredith, aka the Penguin from Batman. <laughs> uh, then he would also do an episode of The Lone Ranger and Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, 1954 and 1961, respectively. Then he would do two episodes of The Twilight Zone, 1960 and 1961, two episodes of Have Gun Will Travel. Uh, from 1960 and 1962. He would also do the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, The McGregor Affair from 1964. And this is his only work in the franchise. After this, he would go on to seven episodes of Hogan's Heroes from 1967 to 1971, playing multiple roles. And then, okay, bear with me, folks. It's a little weird. It's a little wacky, but I had to mention it. He star well. He had a he had a minor role in the porn parody Flesh Gordon in 1974 as Professor Gordon. Gentlemen, we are in big trouble. You've heard about it. You've read about it. Now, finally, you can see it. It will be a dangerous trip, and I don't know what we're likely to encounter out there. But someone has got to save the Earth from the treacherous clutches of that evil ray. Sure. Why not? We'll give it a try. Blast off with Flesh Gordon in his cosmic crusade against all evil. Witness the unbelievable, death-defying feats of that most remarkable superhero of them all, Flesh Gordon. (laughs) 
journey with Flesh Gordon through the dangerous outer reaches of intergalactic space as he joins forces with the mysterious professor and the lovely Dale Arder to save the Earth from the incredible sex ray. It's so strange in here. But I should almost look alive. Flesh Gordon, the preposterous, be swept away to the dazzling heights of astonishment as you enter worlds unknown. I'm Prince Precious, rightful heir to the throne of Porno. Ah! What is it? The floor! It's opening! Join Flesh Gordon as the crafty Emperor Wang unleashes the forces of interstellar tyranny against him in a hundred mind-boggling adventures. Flesh Gordon. Look! An outrageous parody of yesteryear's superhero. It's the eighth one of the world. Oh, boy. Not to be confused with the original Flash Gordon. Then he would do two episodes of Planet of the Apes from 1974. Uh, he would also do episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man and the original Battlestar Galactica. Uh, his last credit was 82 of 137 episodes of Give Me a Break from 1982 to 1987 playing Grandpa Kaniski. John Hoyt died in uh, 1991 on September 15th in Santa Cruz, California from lung cancer, three weeks shy of his 86th birthday. That's a bummer. Then we have Janos Prohaska, who is credited as Anthropoid Ape and Humanoid Bird. Uh, he was born October 10th, 1919 in Budapest, Hungary. Uh, his first credit is The Man and the Challenge as the Invisible Force. That's from 1959. And his first film, Billy Rose's Jumbo, was in 1962. He played a circus performer in that. He would also do three episodes of The Outer Limits uh, from 1963 to 1965 and two episodes of Lost in Space in 1965 and 1966 and this is his first appearance in the franchise so we have not seen the last of mr prohaska oh interesting uh, yeah. i like that he, he played both the ape and the bird that's yeah that's very really cool very versatile very versatile mr prohaska yeah. <laughs> you know it, it's funny when they show the bird character well uh, because he's uh kind of stirring in his uh, little cage and he's like flapping his wings and stuff yeah and it's, and it's like what are they making him imagine you know is he is he taking a bird bath or something like he's, yeah all these, all these other, <laughs> he's like ruffling his feathers and stuff yeah uh, yeah what was yeah what was going on in his head what were they making him see that oh yeah, yeah. it's and how were they able to maintain like all these different visions of different people and different oh, yeah. different creatures in different cages it's wild man well they do say when um you know when they're probing pike for the first time they said hundreds of of uh Tulosians were probing him at one time you know, to try to figure him out so that was i mean there's got to be a bunch of these solutions like hey i'm just gonna mess with the bird guy today i'll make him imagine you know all this stuff yeah uh, it is interesting that in the lower decks they have a bird character and it's like i wonder if they base that bird character off this bird character yes oh yes a lot of people forget that yeah we've got a bird we've got a bird character on the on lower decks yeah for sure uh if you've been watching star trek for any length of time there's a good chance you know both leonard nimoy's and major barrett's contributions to the franchise so in the interest of time we'll save their credits for another day um but last but not least we have Mr. Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Christopher Pike, uh, born Henry Herman McKinney's Jr. 
on November 25th, 1926 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, have you ever been to New Orleans? Uh, yeah, a couple times. I, uh, it's uh, a, do- a, it's yeah, a dope uh, town. Yeah. Um, the, the times I was there was at a, a convention or something, so I didn't get much chance to get out. But uh, I think I, I went there one year for the um, like a, a booksellers convention or librarian show or something where there's like, you know, the, uh, big named authors all over the place signing books. And there's like hundreds of librarians and stuff. Getting it, was, yeah. it was very cool. Yeah, the the wife and I went there for our tenth wedding anniversary. Oh wow! And it was it, we went. Uh, our anniversary is in November, so it was not parade season. But that kind of you know let us move about the city pretty easily, and uh, some amazing food, uh, tons of history, uh, some of the greatest music you'll ever hear. If you, if anybody's like curious about going to New Orleans and hearing authentic new orleans jazz you might hear a couple different things but take it from a guy who who doesn't really know a lot about that stuff go to the old mint tour the mint the mint is cool but when you walk out of the mint walk straight to the sidewalk and that street that's right in front of you just keep walking down that street and whatever you hear walk towards that and you will you will find some really great bands, usually in a place that serves amazing po'boys and other great food and just have a blast with it. It's so much fun. And if you're into like haunted stuff too, oh, lots of lots of tours to be taken and graveyards to explore. It's it's a lot of fun. It's a fun town. Uh, there's a there's a city outside there's a little town outside of uh baton rouge called uh called denim springs and um nice uh i don't claim any ancestry to it but who knows you know um <laughs> nice yeah uh, my, awesome. my yeah my dad went there in the 70s and got me a, a denim springs yellow jacket shirt from like a high school or something so i mean i, I love that oh, that's awesome that's awesome well uh jeffrey hunter's first credit is actually a radio credit i think this is a first for the computer resume podcast but yeah he played uh, a gi in those who serve that was in 1945 uh, and after graduating high school <laughs> hunter joined the united states navy but didn't see any battle duty uh because of an old football injury uh he would go on to graduate from northwestern university in 1949 and then his first film was Julius Caesar in 1950. And then it would be 17 films later where he would see his first TV credit, the, the 20th Century Fox Hour uh, episode titled The Empty Room. That's from 1956. You know, and going through a lot of these folks uh, resumes and, and we'll finish up here in just a second. But in going through a lot of these resumes, I've seen a lot of name of a product playhouse or name of a product theater it's really fascinating to see where television was at that particular period of time where it was like and now the pepsi cola playhouse uh (laughs) or the general electric theater like there's a lot of those and just seemingly endless endless string of these weird like they didn't even bother to try to cover up who the sponsor was they just named the show after the sponsor yeah now now they're buying sports stadiums you know FedEx field exactly oh man yeah you're absolutely right well those are the days of the soap opera this is brought to you by you know 
Bingo. Yep. You're absolutely yeah. right. And the cigarettes, you know, it's like Marlboro brings you. you know? Yes. Oh, then we, uh, then uh, Jeffrey Hunter would uh, go on to do an episode of the Alfred Hitchcock hour in 1962. And then 26 episodes of Temple Houston from 1963 to 1964. And this is his only work in the franchise but not the last that we'll see him. So we will finish up the rest of his career later down the line. Uh, you know, Brian, uh, first of all, thank you so much for uh, carving out the time. I know you're super busy uh, working on projects and uh, doing things for Antarctic and, uh, you know, doing uh, a lot of stuff. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you uh, for coming on. Um, I am not the- Oh man, it's you, you, you have an open invitation. I'm pretty sure I said that to you before, but you have an open invitation to come on the show anytime you want. Uh, so the question that we've been asking everybody, and I think I know where both of us stand, but we are going to stick to our format and ask the question, is this essential viewing? If somebody is sitting down and watching Star Trek for the very first time, do they have to watch this first? Or if it's in the chronology, is this one that they can't skip? Um, I don't think you need to watch it first, but it does need to be watched. And um, I think not just essential viewing for Star Trek fans, essential viewing for people. This is such a great episode of, of Life Lessons All bunched into one. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I, I would definitely agree. I, this this segment's going to be fairly short because we definitely agree. I, and I think it, Absolutely. To your point, I think, yeah, it doesn't necessarily need to be watched first, but it does need to be viewed. And I think it is essential to see where this kind of sets things off for the franchise. You know, if you are watching it in chronological order by release date, it is kind of important to see where it actually began. And that's right here at the cage. Uh, um, Along with, if you're watching it with the computer resume podcast as we are covering it in chronological order uh by the story uh this is an important thing to see because if nothing else you see um a couple of early glimpses of the character and the nature and the motivations behind at least pike spock and number one and those are very important going forward especially into discovery and strange new worlds uh, but yeah, absolutely. Any final thoughts, uh, Brian, about uh, the cage, uh, what this set the stage for, and uh, again, your experience here on the podcast and uh, just everything you've got. What are your final thoughts? I love this podcast and I love being on it. And I appreciate you giving me a chance to geek out about all things Star Trek. Dude, Thank we you love so you, much for that time. We love you, brother. Uh, this episode I have loved since I first saw it as a kid at that show with Gene Ronberry. But and I've gotten more and more and more from it. Uh, over the years, more times I watch it, I get something new. I watched it this morning, just in preparation, but I knew so much going into it. Although I did take some notes, you know, uh, some joke things like uh, the red alert was kind of silly sounding. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pipe, pipe walking through the Enterprise and everybody's in 60s clothes. That was kind of fun. It was like 60 day on board the ship, but yes, um, yes, uh, so much good stuff in this episode. And I love it, love it, love it so much, you know. Well, folks, next week there's nothing because this is the end of season four of the Computer Resume podcast. All Yay! right, Woo! 
<laughs> uh, I'd like to uh, give a quick thank you to everyone who's come on this season, including, of course, our current guest, writer, illustrator, uh, editor-in-chief of Antarctic Press, Mr. Brian Denham. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Uh, of course, we have TJ Surgeon from Verge Games, sci-fi author Dan McMillan, artist, photographer J.P. Newton, actor and filmmaker Matt Jennings, comedian and artist Andy Cummins, the elusive Mr. Fred Sims, Wes from Twin City Trekkies, uh, comedian Patrick Cunningham, former USS Enterprise engineer and new D&D bestie Michael LeBlanc. Pop artist Dwayne Ballinger, the teensy Ren Sims, uh, Lego mock builder Thomas Fletcher, the delightful Jerry Antamano, Gary and Justin, my brothers from Cinema Shock, and of course, the lovely, talented, and brilliant, your executive producer, Mrs. Kat Davis. Don't worry, folks, we will be back on January 9th, 2023 with more Trek-tasticness. That's a new word. You heard it here first. <laughs> uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Todd, you left one very important person out of who do we blame? You didn't mention Susan Oliver, the very first green girl to appear on Star Trek. I'm glad you brought that up. On January 9th, 2023, we will be joined by theater professor Caroline Davis for George Pappy's 2014 documentary about the life and work of Susan Oliver, titled The Green Girl, which is available for free on Tubi and Pluto, and is also available to rent on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. Brian. Where can people find your work and support things you've got going on on the interwebs? I work at Antarctic Press. I do uh, social media for the Antarctic Press Twitter at uh, Twitter Antarctic Press and, and Antarctic, at Antarctic Press on Facebook and Instagram. And on me personally, you can find me on uh, Instagram at brian.denham or Twitter at brian.denham and uh, my email brian.denham at gmail. <laughs> And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials from all of us at Computer Resume Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you in 10 forward. Like, rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume Podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop, and our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, and the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Go with
through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods, and we're gonna find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?